Good morning, faithful remnant. You could uh, maybe turn me down a bit. I I think it's a little overkill with... Is that good? Oh, I should keep talking. That would be helpful. Yeah. Okay. How's that? Is that better? Yeah. What do you guys think? It's pretty good. Cool. Okay. So, what if I told you this morning that we should think of God's judgment as good news? You might think that sounds a little crazy. We do like to talk about justice in our society as a good thing, but isn't judgment a bad thing? Right? We don't, we don't want to be judged. This is something I've wrestled with personally in trying to understand God. How, how could God be judged? What does that mean for us? How should we think about that and understand that? <clears throat> but before we jump into that, you might be wondering, uh, some of you, why in the world were you are preaching on Isaiah this morning. Um, if you've been with us the last few months, you know we're going through the book of 2 Timothy, uh, but for spring break, we're taking a little, little detour, a couple weeks of doing some other things. And Tommy mentioned last week that we, we don't usually do topical sermons. Um, we usually just pick a book of the Bible and just preach straight through that. Um, so we're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and that way we're trying our best to say, okay, what is, what is the book saying? Not just what do I think about it, though that's part of the process. Um, but I had to pick a random <laughs> sermon today, so I'm going to work out of Isaiah chapter 1 and, and do my best to unpack what Isaiah is talking about, but this is also coming from my, kind of my own wrestling with this question about God's judgment. So, um, so that will come out as this goes along. <clears throat> so why do, we, why do we not think God's judgment is good news, right? Why, why do, I don't know about you, that makes me uncomfortable, right? When people talk about God's judgment, I'm like, uh I don't want to hear about that. I think there are two reasons for this. One is a limited view of sin, and the other is a distorted view of God. So the first one, sin, we don't like to think of the judgment of God because we don't actually see how destructive our sin is. We tend to think of sin, and this is part of just being in a very individualistic culture, we think of sin as something private, something that that I do that is just kind of in my heart or something, you know, something that, like a mistake that I made that, you know, oops, I shouldn't do that again, All right? Something, something private that's going on. In here and, and in our society, we don't judge people for things they do in private, right? You do whatever you want in private as long as it doesn't affect someone else. That's kind of how our whole society functions. Um, and it's true that we have this understanding in Scripture that all sin is ultimately rooted in idolatry. So idolatry is worshiping something other than the one true God, that he... God created everything, he's sustaining everything, he is over everything, and he's good. And so if we're, if we're not worshiping that God, we're worshiping other things, that's, that's idolatry. But we tend to then think of idolatry in very personal terms. Again, my worship is like a private thing, and we, it's part of our society, right? You can, you can go worship whatever God you want, you can have whatever religion you want, that's like a private sphere thing. So we don't think it really affects the rest of life. And then we don't think idolatry is that big of a deal. But I, what we actually see in Scripture over and over again, and if you were with us in the book of Judges last semester, we talked a lot about idolatry. We see wrapped up in this concept of, of false worship, of not worshiping the one true God, is disastrous social consequences. Right? It's never just this, this private thing. It actually begins to corrupt us and destroy us, but also everyone around us as we begin to extort and exploit and take advantage of those around us for our own benefit. And it has these destructive effects. So one area in in our culture right now, or one just in general, um, and even in the church, is the issue of pornography. So we have rampant pornography. It's, It's a huge, huge addiction. And we also have this issue coming out of we're finding more and more of sexual abuse. So we have these kind of two, two things going on. And Part of this, we think about sex as a private thing, right? Don't tell me what to do with my body. You know, I, I can do whatever I want. And people will trace a lot of this back to the introduction of, the, of birth control, which is not a bad thing. We, you know, birth control is not a bad thing. But it allowed people for the first time to actually separate sex from procreation, right? Like that was always a real possibility that pregnancy was always a real possibility. And so you had this kind of more necessary intertwining of of sex and marriage and sex and family 
in a way that now is, is detached. And so sex can become re recreation, recreation as opposed to procreation. And so I think this idolatry of, of sex right, is having these destructive social consequences. So things like you know, this ad addiction to pornography, which, again, it seems like a private thing, but we're actually seeing the breakdown and dissolution of, of families in our society, which is actually associated with things like higher crime rates. Right? Kids from broken homes are more likely to end up in the system and in prison. Like, that's a, that's a real thing. <laughs> that's a real thing. Um, we have even people in uh, the Me Too movement, for example, which are calling people to account for a lot of these injustices that are happening, are starting to rethink, man, if we also buy into the free sex e ethos, we don't really have a way of, of, of calling this to account. We don't have an alternative vision of what this is other than just don't hurt anyone. Right? We, don't, we don't have this robust view of, of sex that's actually going to help. And not, one of the, so one of the ways this has come out recently in the church, and we're always, we see this with the Catholic Church, there's been a number of big sex scandals, and we can easily point our fingers at that, but here in the Southern Baptist Convention, which our church is affiliated with, there was, uh, just in the last year, has come out huge cases of abuse, sexual abuse in the church. This is just for <clears throat> one article said this, a team of journalists uncovered a trail that not only includes about 380 church workers and volunteers who are credibly accused of sexual assault and, the more, and more than 700 victims they left behind, but also a chilling pattern of church authorities scrambling to discredit the accusers, protect the attackers, rebuff attempts to involve local law enforcement, and in several cases continue to employ known abusers. I mean, this is just, this is devastating. This is terrible. We should mourn this. But I think we, we have to see that this is connected to how we view sex, right? This, this thing that we think is a private thing, I can do whatever I want with my body, and we start to view other people as someone who can fulfill me in this way, that contributes to the ways in which people are being abused sexually, and pornography contributes to that. The way we view other human beings as objects of sex for our benefit, you think that isn't going to affect the rest of your relationships and the rest of our society? So these things that we think are just private things actually have disastrous social effects. Another area we see this is in terms of greed and the ecological crisis. I mean, we're running out of honeybees, you know, like bees to pollinate the plants, and the butterfly count is is a small percentage of what it was. I mean, just drastic effects on the oceans and uh, all of our Earth. Because we've been told over and over again, hey, the most important thing is to collect private property and as much wealth as you can, and that's what success looks like. Well, if that's, if that's the system that's running, how all of our nation states are interacting and how we think about our markets and society, yes, that's gonna destroy the Earth. Right? It has disastrous effects on the rest of creation as we exploit and use everything for our benefit because that's what we think life is about. So yes, sin is tied up in this idolatry, right? not worshiping the one true God, but the effects of that are, are huge and disastrous. And so our sin is both personal and it's corporate. right? It's, it has a systemic element, but it's never private. So that's the first one. One of the reasons we don't think of God's judgment as a good thing, as good news, is because we have this limited view of sin, right? We think sin is just this private thing when actually it affects everyone around us. <clears throat> the second view is I think we have a distorted view of who God is. We begin to think of judgment as bad news because we imagine God as this angry dictator up in the sky. He's throwing down his lightning bolts at all those people who don't do everything he says. Uh, Christopher Hitchens gives a character of caricature of God as a, a cosmic Kim Jong-un, as the like, cosmic dictator of North Korea. That's how he says, oh, this is what the God of the Bible is like. And we, we start to think of God as off judging us callously from a distance. He's, you know, we broke a few rules, or we were born in the wrong part of the world, and we don't happen to believe in him, so we're always going to smite you. And we start to have this picture of God as judge in this way, the great cosmic bully. Or we talk about the cross in a way where we say, well, you have God, he's really angry, but Jesus is loving, and, and so he gets in the way, and God punishes him instead. 
And so you have this father beating up on his son, and it starts to seem to justify things like you have this sort of divine child abuse that then people use to, to justify or not condemn <laughs> child abuse in real life. So we have these distorted views of who God actually is. So I want to get into addressing those uh, views. But according to Isaiah 1, right, so let's jump into our passage here, how should instead should we view God's judgment? How should we think about God's judgment as good news? So uh, you, Bibles on your seats and under, underneath your seats, uh, you follow along, uh, we'll be in starting in verse 10. <clears throat> so I'm just going to go along here. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. If you're familiar with uh, Genesis, this is not a good thing to be called, right? Sodom is associated with violence and just this horrible uh, people taking horrible advantage of other people and just, just terrible things happening in Sodom. And this is how, how God, is, what God is calling Israel. He's saying, you, you are like this. You are full of this violence and oppression. He's judging them. Then he says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams, of the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before your eyes, from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So the first thing we see here about God's judgment, I think, is that it, re- it reflects his heart. So God is in this, in this moment in Isaiah chapter 1, he's, he's through Isaiah, is commanding or, or proclaiming judgment on Israel. But as we start to unpack the nature of that judgment, I think it shows us something about God's heart and what God really cares about. And we have, we have this beginning here where he's saying, don't bring me your offerings. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament system, this should seem kind of weird to us. So all of of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and all of these books are setting up this whole system for the people of Israel to interact with God, right? God is holy, he's perfect, they're not, so there's this whole sacrificial system for them to interact with God and to worship God. So they're doing all these religious things that they've been commanded to do, right? They're, they're doing the right things in a sense. And yet, God's like, I don't, I don't want that. I don't want your offerings. I don't want your worship. I don't want your sacrifices. Stop, stop giving them to me. What does he talk? Why is he, like, God commanded this. What is, why does he not want it? And what we see here is that they're, they're doing all the right things, right? They're, they're doing these things, and they're actually missing the whole point. They're totally misunderstanding the heart of God. So even though they're, actually, they're doing all the right sacrifices and stuff, it's actually idolatry. <laughs> Because they're not worshiping Yahweh, the one true God. They're worshiping some God of their own making. And you can see this by the effects in their society. You can know that they're not worshiping the one true God because they're oppressing those around them. They're extorting them and taking advantage of them and mistreating them and being violent towards them. God says, you're missing the whole point. You don't, you don't know who I am because look at your society. Look at what you're doing. So he's calling them out on behalf of this. So if we see that this element of God's heart that, yes, he, he, he wants this, he has a system that he's commanded, but really what he cares about, and he, the whole point of that system was to reflect who God, who he was, and that God is the God who identifies with the fatherless and the, orf, the, the widow, the poor, and the, the least in society. So we see this about God's heart. And even Jesus brings this up in the New Testament. So he's talking to the Pharisees, and he's calling them out for their hypocrisy and their religion. He's saying, you're, you're like these whitewashed tombs. 
He says, you tithe your dill, mint, and cumin, so all these things they were supposed to do, but you, but you neglect the weightier elements of the law to do justice and mercy. He says, you, sh- you should be doing both, right? So he doesn't say, don't do the religious stuff. He's saying, but, but if you do the religious stuff and don't do this, you're missing the whole point, right? You, you go to temple and you do all the things you're supposed to do, but you don't love your neighbor and you don't take care of the least of these and you don't know who I am and you're not really worshiping me. The second thing we see about God's judgment is that it lifts up the broken, right? So God's judgment on Israel right now, he's saying, I'm, I'm judging you, and that, what that judgment is going to look like, the thing it's going to correct is that it's going to lift up the fatherless, the orphan, the widow, and the poor. That's what God's judgment is going to accomplish. And we see this really interesting thing here as, as we look at um, verse 17. So I was actually I was reading this for a class, so we were translating it, and I was going through this passage, and there's a really interesting thing in Hebrew here, because in Hebrew, so we have this word in the first, uh, in 17, he says, seek justice. That's this word, mishpat, um, which is the word for justice. Um, but you get down to the second two lines down, where it says, bring justice to the fatherless. In Hebrew, that literally says, judge the orphan. Sounds really weird. Like, they already don't have parents. Life's not that great. Like, why would you judge them? That seems really bad. But this word mishpat for justice and this word for judge, uh, shafat, in, in Hebrew, those are the same root. Which, which may, like, mishpat is just the noun form of that verb. It's the same word, basically. So in Hebrew, there is no distinction between justice and judgment. Because what it means for God to be judge is to humble the exalted and the proud, but to lift up those who have been humbled. Right? So so there's this equalizing effect where God brings down those who've lifted themselves up, but those who've been brought low, he, he then lifts them up. So God's judgment, when God judges the world, he actually brings about uh, liberation and restoration for those who've been oppressed and marginalized by society. That's what it means to, to judge the orphan and to contend for the widow, right, is, is to actually bring justice to them. It's to make sure that the orphan is no longer being taken advantage of by society. I, f- I first started to, to think about this uh, last semester. So if you're with us for that, we're going through the book of Judges. And we got towards the end of the semester, and we got to Judges chapter 19, which is just, it's, it's the worst chapter in the Bible. <laughs> so we get to this point, and the whole book of Judges is just a downward spiral, right? It just, things get worse and worse and worse. And it's, it's centered around idolatry, but every time they go back to idolatry, right, it, the, the society just gets worse and worse and worse. And so we get to night, Judges 19, and we're basically at the bottom of the spiral, and so uh, it was first service, Kate, Kate Duran got up here and read the entire chapter. And, you know, Sunday morning, every, people are more or less happy to be here and coming in and all excited. And they sit down and she starts reading the passage and it, just this heavy silence slowly fell upon the room so you could hear a pin drop as people started to realize what was happening in this passage. And if you don't know the passage... Basically, what happens is you have this guy who's supposed to be a Levite priest. He's supposed to be one of the good religious guys. And he has his wife, and they're traveling, and they end up in this town. And this group of, of men show up late at night and basically demand that they give him to them so they can gang rape him. It's not totally clear from the passage. Either the owner of the house or the husband is in order to save themselves, gives them the wife. And she's raped to death. That's, that's the story. And in the morning, it's, you know, it doesn't tell us a lot about his emotional state, but he doesn't seem to care all that. It's not totally clear. He doesn't seem to care all that much. He finds her on the ground, throws her on his donkey, takes her home, and then chops up her body and sends it to the 12 tribes of Israel to, tell them, to show them what happened. It's, it's just, it's, it's devastating. 
And this is the bottom of the spiral. And after reading that, um, and just taking in the, the immensity of, of the horror, um, Justin got up and, and prayed and just said, God, thank you that there will be final judgment so that this unnamed woman will someday have justice. And I was at the back crying a bit. And it just clicked, like, oh, oh, yeah. It's good that God is going to judge. Because if there's no judgment, then that woman never gets justice. And if there's no judgment, then all of the people in the world who have experienced just horrendous evils at the hands of others will never have justice unless God is judge. And so I started to think about this. What it means for God to be judge means that those who've been taken advantage of and broken and and beaten down by our world, they will have, they have hope. They will be given justice and the wrongs will be made right someday. So judgment, God's judgment lifts up the broken. Third, God's judgment purges, uh, it purges evil and wickedness and cleanses and washes. So we see this, there's two different metaphors here. We've got uh, in um, the end of verse 15, he's saying, your hands are full of blood. Right? You've, been, you've been violent towards one another. It says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of the deeds before my eyes. So with this, this washing away of this evil and this blood. Uh, but, and then we get eight, verse 18. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. They are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And obviously, scarlet, crimson, again, blood, right? You, you have blood on your hands. Uh, and then, so then a little bit later, we'll read this other metaphor he uses. So, um, verse 24 says, Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. So this is the, the, the metaphor, the image of uh, smelting, which is you take, take a, pre- a metal, usually a precious metal, and you heat it up. And as you heat it up, less dense metals rise to the surface. So you take gold, you heat it up to a certain temperature. Any other metals that have been bound to that gold, um, I'm not a chemist, someone could probably explain this better, but they, they rise to the top, and you can wipe off that dross, right? You can sort of skim off the top, and now the gold is more pure. So... God, God's judgment is not just this sort of crushing, destructive judgment, right? It's a judgment that, that purifies and cleans, right? Like, like when you have a, a wound that needs to be sort of, you need to take off the, the dead skin so that the wound can actually heal. Otherwise, it will get infected, right? So God, it, it's purifying. It brings life, which brings us to our last uh, point here about God's judgment, that God's judgment is ultimately restorative. So we see this as we continue down in verse 26. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. So God's judgment is not this, you did something bad, now you're in trouble, you know, bad on you, right? Now he, he wants to restore the relationship. He wants to bring about this flourishing. It's part of his, his recreation project that he's, he created everything. It's been corrupted and marred and destroyed by, by sin, and he wants to purify and bring about this restoration and recreation so that the world can flourish again. And this is why God's judgment is good news, that it that it reveals to us the heart of God, that it lifts up the broken, it it gets rid of the the evil and the wickedness, but it also then does that all so that God can restore and bring about something beautiful 
from something that is broken and corrupted. Um, I've struggled with this conception of justice because I, and God's judgment because I have grown up in a fairly comfortable environment. I've never really had anyone <laughs> do, like, take advantage of me in a way and, take, and treat me in such a way where I felt like I needed justice against them. So I've never really understood God's judgment from this. And I think for a lot of especially uh, more affluent or, or white churches in America, this is the case. We don't r- really understand this aspect of God's judgment. But we look at the, the history of, of Christians in slavery in America and the, and the history of the black church in this country, they get this. They understand that what God's justice and God's judgment means for them is liberation. It means freedom. Because if God's judgment lifts up the, oppressor, or the oppressed, it does it by getting rid of the oppressor. Right? You have to judge the oppressor in order to free the one who is oppressed. And so we have this twofold dimension that God's justice brings about the liberation from the oppression of our sin, but also the sins against us. It's not just this individual salvation. God is, is bringing about justice in terms of those who've also sinned against us. But there's this really cool thing that, <laughs> that Isaiah brings out here about God's judgment. Because I think we do get this to some extent, right? So going back to something like Me Too movement, right? We're, we're calling out this, this injustice that's been way pervasive in society for way, you know, for forever, really, unchecked in a lot of ways. But there's also, so we get the judgment, right? Those who've done wrong, we, we can judge them as the oppressor, as the abuser. But what there isn't is redemption or restoration, right? It's a, it's a purely retributive judgment that, that that person is going to be judged and condemned, end of story. But that's not God's judgment. God's judgment is not like that. I think, I think I said that the, the, the black church understood this conception because they drew, their biggest thing they drew upon was the exodus. That's how they understood themselves, is in relation to the people of God being brought out of slavery in Egypt. And so they understand this relationship of both being freed from your oppressor, but that that freedom, that judgment, also actually frees the oppressor themselves. Right? So there's kind of this twofold thing going on here. And uh, James Baldwin, in his book, The Fire Next Time, he's writing to his nephew and talking about kind of Jim Crow era South, um, things that are going on. And he says, we will not be free until they are free. And he's, he's getting at something much bigger here, which is that ultimately all of this is bondage to something much bigger than just each other. Right? It's bondage to sin, that all of us are in bondage to sin. And that God's judgment then brings liberation for both the oppressor, I mean both the oppressed, but also the oppressor. And this is really, so Isaiah brings this out in Isaiah chapter 19, uh, which I'll have on the screen. So all throughout Isaiah, you get the, you get the Exodus narrative and story just over and over. It's, it's, it's so cool. Go read Isaiah. Um, <laughs> it says, In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. So Egypt is south of Israel, Assyria is north of Israel. In Isaiah's time, Assyria is now the ones oppressing Israel, right? So their ancient, their old enemy, their new enemy, he's saying these, these will come together. And in that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. 
There's an incredible thing going on here, right? So if you read Exodus, God punishes the Egyptians in a pretty horrible way, but uh, it's just, right? They've been, they've been oppressing and tr- treating, the, they've been literally, the Israelites have been enslaved in Egypt for, for several hundred years in these horrible conditions, and God is bringing judgment on Egypt in order to get the Israelites out of there. So it's, it's a horrible judgment. A lot of really bad things happen, but it, it liberates and frees the Israelites. It's just. It brings about justice. But God doesn't just leave the Egyptians. Even that, in that judgment, God has in view that he's going to restore the Egyptians to himself. So even here, the oppressor is become, being set free and restored into relationship so that Israel is restored into relationship with Egypt, who was once their oppressor, and Assyria, who is now their oppressor. That God's judgment brings about healing and redemption and restoration. So how does God bring about this judgment? How is this actually accomplished on a, on a grand cosmic scale? Does he just, you know, dole it out here and there? What's going on? Um, there's this guy you might have heard of. Uh, his name is Jesus. And he actually opens up his ministry quoting Isaiah, going back to the message of Isaiah. And we've got this in Luke chapter 4. And so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So all of the things we see in Isaiah that he's pointing forward to, Jesus is saying, I, I'm the one who's going to bring that about. I'm going to bring about that judgment that lifts up the broken and restores people together. So in Christ, God comes down as king in order to restore justice to his creation. But he does this not as the, the conqueror, which Israel or Isaiah draws out that God the conqueror comes as the, the shepherd of his people. He's already reversing the, the imagery there. But that in Christ, we see that God judges and condemns our sin. So the Bible tells us that Christ, that Jesus became sin for us, right? That, that that's what's being punished on the cross, right? Jesus is not being punished in the sense that Jesus was, was perfect. That's, <laughs> that's the point, right? He had never sinned. He had never done any of these destructive things that we participate in. But he became our sin for us so that in him, sin could be condemned and judged on the cross. The great oppressor of all of creation could be judged. He unmasks the injustice of the cross for what it is and the corruption of sin so that we're no longer held bondage to the oppressive power of our sin and the death that results. And it's at the cross that we see that God doesn't trivialize evil. God is not off somewhere distant watching as we struggle around on this earth as people are suffering. But he comes and walks among us, taking on the brokenness of humanity. And then God on the cross shows us how he feels about evil and sin. The early church had a way of interpreting what happened on the cross that we uh, don't talk about as often, but I think is, is really picking up on this exodus narrative that we see in Isaiah. And uh, it's been, it's, it's sometimes called Christus Victor, so Christ as like conqueror, victor. But what Christ is conquering in his death and his resurrection, right, are not, not humans, but sin and the powers of this world. See, the early, the early church, they still thought about things in this very cosmic view, right? You've got angels and demons and, and Satan, you have all these powers that are going on, right? They didn't have a 
as much of a, a naturalistic understanding of the world as we do. And so for them, they understood that we as, as fallen humans, are, we're in bondage to our sin, right? They're not just free choices that we make to do bad things, but those things enslave us, right? We become enslaved to our sin, and we cannot get free. We cannot work our way out of our sin. We're enslaved. But in Romans, Paul takes this up in uh, Romans chapter 6. He says, do, not, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So what Jesus is doing, and what we need to recognize when we look at all of the, the suffering and oppression in our world, right, is, is there is this human level, but there's also this cosmic dynamic, right, that, that, that Satan is working, and there are powers at working that are bringing about evil, and that we are enslaved to our sin, and that Jesus Christ on the cross is conquering over that sin, and in the resurrection is, is conquering over death, proclaiming his victory over death, that we now, through Christ, have freedom. We are liberated from the oppression of sin that leads us to oppress others. And even here in this, as Jesus is doing this, right, the way he conquers is so different from the way we think about power and the way we think about what it means to, to conquer. Revelation gives us this really cool image of this lion. Uh, John is, is, is hearing, he's saying, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, it's in chapter 5, who, who conquers over his enemies. So you're expecting this, you know, this great victorious lion who's, you know, tearing his enemies apart. And he turns and he looks, and what does he see? He sees a lamb as if slain, which is one of the central images for, for Jesus and the cross. So the way in which God brings about this justice, the way in which he judges and condemns the oppression of sin and sets us free is not throwing fireballs from heaven or thunderbolts or something, right? He comes and he walks among us, and he takes on all of the brokenness and that oppression onto himself. And in that, in that place among us, he condemns it for what it is and overcomes it. So as Christians, we have, we have freedom from the power of sin. But we need to recognize, as we think about this, that all of us have participated in idolatry. And as I said at the beginning, this idolatry is not, it's not private. And so all of us, in some way or another, have been part of both as, on an individual level and has been part of systems and structures in our society where we have destroyed God's creation. We have oppressed others and exploited them and, and our environment for our own benefit. And we've been part of this destruction of God's creation. And so because of that, every one of us deserves that judgment. Which doesn't sound as much like good news anymore. Right, this wrath that's, that's pouring uh, promise to, uh, uh, to Israel in Isaiah chapter 1 because there's blood on their hands, right? Because they've abused the, the poor and the needy in their midst. He's going he's gonna to collect that from them. He's going to bring justice to the poor at the cost of those who are in power. We too have blood on our hands for the things that we have done and have failed to do. And we don't want to think of it this way, Right? We, want, we want to be able to point fingers because it's a lot easier when it comes to justice. And there's this great quote by this guy, Alexander. I won't pronounce his last name because I can't say it. Uh, he says, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil, de evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And it was necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. Which is kind of what we do right now with a lot of our justice in society. You did this bad thing, we're going to condemn you forever. You're evil. He says, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? 
So no one <laughs> has clean hands, right? Nobody is innocent. We've all been part of evil and oppression in our world in one way or another. And so that judgment is coming. God is going to restore his creation, not because he, he hates us and, and wants to destroy us, but because he wants the destruction to stop so that he can make something beautiful. But that means getting rid of the evil. But if we accept Christ as our judge, the same one who took on our sin and brokenness and was judged and condemned that sin on the cross, he now is the picture of, in Revelation. He is the judge over everything. He is the one with all power and authority. Not this distant, angry God, but the God who walked among us and took on our sorrows and our shame. So if you accept Christ as, as your Lord, as your judge, he is a good judge, and that judgment is good news. Because in him, our sin has already been condemned. And that, that judgment means that one day, God is going to set right all the wrongs in our world. All the people who've never had justice, all the brokenness that we see, God is going to do something about it. He's not just going to let it go. And he's going to restore his uh, beautiful creation where there is order and justice and no one is oppressed or taken advantage of. So if this judgment is ultimately good news, how do we respond to this? What do we, how do we think about God's judgment? Well, I think first is, it seems obvious that we repent. We repent of the ways that we've worshipped idols and sinned against God and his creation, including those around us, our fellow uh, image bearers of God. So think about how is, how is my sin affecting those around me? Maybe sins that I thought I could hide. How are they coming out and destroying my relationships? How am I exploiting and using God's creation instead of stewarding it and caring for it? How have I sought power over others for my selfish gain and used them for my advantage? But then trust in Christ because he's the good judge who also justifies us. So we, we cling to the grace of the cross every day, right? Because we, we can't get out of the world, right? We can't stop participating in a lot of these systems. We just exist in them, right? So we, we come back to the cross for the grace of God, we're knowing that all of our sin has already been judged and condemned in Christ, and that we have victory and liberation from the oppression of sin. But if you are here this morning and you've never received that, you've never received his lordship, you've never repented of that sin and said, God, I need your grace. I need to receive you this morning as, as the good judge who brings about and restores peace, then he will judge you. He's not going to allow your sin to go unpunished. Not just because he's angry or something, but for the sake of those that you have sinned against. He's not going to let those sins go unpunished. There will be justice on behalf of those who need it. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would invite you this morning to put your faith in Jesus, to receive the forgiveness of, a, of a, this good judge who's just, whose judgments are always just. Otherwise, you'll remain enslaved and oppressed in your sin and will continue to oppress others. Now, as we then go out, we should seek to correct oppression, right? God, Isaiah is calling them to return and repent of their idolatry, and we see this throughout the rest of the book, but that looks like living in such a way that reflects God's heart. So how do we go out and do that? How do we go out and be the people that God is calling Israel to be in Isaiah, this people who uh, who seek justice and correct oppression and bring justice to the fatherless and plead the cause of the widow. Because we have this, although we have this hope and final judgment that one day God will, he will make everything right, right. All the things we can't fix now, he's going to fix them. And if we just try to use the world's systems, we, it will fail, right? We, we'll never be able to, re, to truly achieve justice here and now. So we have this future hope that someday God will do that. 
But that doesn't mean we don't do everything we can now. Right? We do everything we can now to live out the heart of God in love for those around us. And we see this in the New Testament, right? The, the response of the early church is to set up a distribution for their widows, right? To take care of the poor in their midst, to, to help those who are, who are uh, hurting and broken. So first thing I would say is to pray. Don't, don't stay away from the, the messy things that are happening in our world. Go find out about them and pray about them, right? The, the war-torn areas, right? places like Syria, right? Go, go read about it and pray about it because it's, it's, it's awful. And that's not something that God wants to happen, right? Like God, God wants justice in that situation. So let's pray for justice. Pray for Christians who are being persecuted around the world. You know, we live in a context where we can pretty much say anything we want most of the time with very little repercussions. But there are plenty of Christians in the world and other places that are living in poverty and oppression. And maybe it's religious. It could just be under systems of, of corrupt governments, right, where just, there just isn't food. And it has nothing to do with religious belief, but the people are living in, in this poverty because of corruption and injustice. Let's pray that God would bring justice in these places. Get involved locally. There are lots of things you can do. There are lots of ways you can get involved and you can help to, to alleviate things, but um, just a couple. One is you can volunteer at Craig's Doors. So we have a homeless shelter right here in Amherst that provides housing and food all winter. All right, go, go help out with that. There are all sorts of reasons why people end up homeless in poverty, personal reasons, social reasons, all kinds of things. That's, that's not, not our call is to, to figure that out so much as to go and love and serve those people. So let's do that. Uh, you can help out of the Freedom Cafe. There's a, a cafe in the basement of First Baptist that was started by Chi Alpha, which is a, a group on campus and uh, Christian ministry. And it's a nonprofit cafe that all of their profit goes towards uh, ending sex trafficking of young women in India. So they have things, they have training centers where they're teaching these women actual skills that they can use to, to sell products and make things that will get them out of uh, poverty, but also get them out of a place where they, they end up in sex slavery and prostitution. So there are people who are volunteering their time to make that possible. So you can go, go volunteer. There are lots of ways in which we can be involved in our society as Christians with the love of Christ and this hope, we can be bringing uh, this, this truth of God's ultimate justice. And then finally, as you go out, just procla- proclaim the good news of God's judgment as hope for a broken world. Right? We shy away from this. We're afraid of this because it sounds bad and, and we, don't wanna, we don't like to talk about judging people. But this is hope. This is good news that those right now in our world who are suffering, that God is going to make that right. He doesn't turn a blind eye. He sees them. That is good news. And that's the gospel, that that is the kind of God that we worship. So let's take that out to the world. Every week, we come to this table to remember Jesus Christ, who is both our judge and our justifier. That that 2,000 years ago, he, God, God himself, came as a human, to walk among us, to live among us, to experience the brokenness and injustice of a society being oppressed by the Romans and all these things going on, and experience what it was like to be one of us. And in that brokenness, he went even further, said, to, to condemn sin in himself, and he did this by offering up him his own body. So he as he was sitting with his disciples, he took a piece of bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Um, And similarly on that night, as he's looking forward to his betrayal and execution on the cross, he takes a cup and says, this is my blood poured out for you as a ransom. That language of ransom is to, to use to free someone from oppression from slavery, that we are ransomed from the power of sin by what Christ accomplished on the cross.
and in his resurrection. So we look back to that. But here at the table, this incredible thing that we have as Christians, that this table, what it tells us is that all of us were once enslaved to sin, and all of us in Christ have been set free. And so the, ta- the table is a level ground, right? They, there's an expression that the, the ground is, is level before the foot of the cross. Because it doesn't matter where you're coming from, what positions of, of influence and power you have or don't have, what kind of money you have or don't have, the education you have or don't have, the things that have been done to you to hurt you, or the things you've done to hurt others. Because of the cross, we all have the same hope in Christ, the same righteousness offered through Christ. And so we come as one family, as one body, all set free from the oppression of sin, but on this level ground of the gospel. And finally, we look forward to the day when Jesus Christ will be the judge of the living and the dead, and all the things that we have done and others have done to us will be held to account, and that God will take all of the brokenness in our world, and he will restore and make something beautiful. And we get to be part of that as Christians. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Christ has done, in spite of what we have done, in fact. Lord, we worship you as uh, the good judge who brings about justice in your world. God, who, who created everything and sus- you sustain everything, and you're going to bring it all to completion. God, you do not look away from our suffering, but you come and walk amongst us. Lord, uh, would we know you and the goodness of that hope that we have in, in your judgment, Lord, that you will restore all things to yourself? Lord, would we uh, take comfort this morning in this truth? And would we worship you uh, for your goodness and your holiness. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.